What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, I'm your host Gordon Burkell. Today's actually going to be a Lawrence Render Files because we have Angus Mackay from Avid and Jeremy Chilnick, the producer of Palm Wonderful's The Greatest Movie Ever Sold. So, what we're going to do is we're going to have Jeremy on the phone and Angus via Skype. Angus was in Montreal and Jeremy was in New York for IFP. And afterwards, Lauren and I will chat a little bit. Now, this is actually part of our double dose of Cutting Room today. So if you're listening to this, you can also listen to our interview with HBO editor Jeff Bartz, which was released just before this. But in the meantime, enjoy my interview with Angus and Jeremy. Let's start with discussing uh, the panel that you guys did yesterday. How did you become involved with the IFP and in particular with this panel, Jeremy? Um, I became, uh, I've been aware of IFP for years being in the independent film uh, community, but with this panel specifically, uh, Megan King asked me to be a part of it, and I said, absolutely. Okay, and Angus, uh, what's Avid's involvement in in this? So obviously, uh, Avid is a company that makes Media Composer, which is a tool that's been used for high-end editorial for over 20 years. And it's obviously popular not only with top-end television and film production on the West Coast and around the world, but also with uh, independence. And we believe that Media Composer has a a lot to offer the independent film community, and we wanted to re-engage with them as we continue to make Media Composer more accessible and available to a greater number of users. Now, as a producer, Jeremy, uh, what are some of the major unique approaches to a post-workflow that you've had to use? Well, I mean, I work uh, primarily in nonfiction, which is documentary. So generally, we are, the biggest challenge with our post workflows is the sheer amount of footage that we are working with. For, uh, you know, Great Palm Wonderful Presents, the greatest movie ever sold, that was about 360 hours and then of footage. And then for this film that we just premiered at Toronto, Comic-Con Episode 4, Fans Hope, which follows everybody, um, you know, five diehard geeks as they descend upon San Diego. To capture that event, we had about 600 hours of footage. So the biggest challenge for us is pretty much just storage in a, in a stable system. We use the, the ISIS for that and just in terms of always being able to find the media and how the media is laid out. So um, Inhabit has always been superior in that, uh, excuse me, Inhabit has always been superior um, for that use. You touched on Palm Wonderful, which is a fantastic film because it sort of reveals the ad industry. Thank you. But one of the interesting things is how in the film you show the creation of the promotional material for the film. How did that affect your schedule? Because you were essentially cutting the film as you were shooting the promotional material. That is absolutely true. Um, we actually we shot the last the last shot of the greatest movie ever sold was literally shot and put into the film about seven days before we actually um, you know printed our tape and put it off to Sundance. So it was a challenge. I mean, in essence, the last reel of that film was almost entirely done in real time because we wanted to get as close to our actual premiere date at Sundance so you could capture the marketing in terms of just how you're editing. It one, it drove our editor completely insane. That was, the, that was, that was a, a giant challenge in our post-workflow. It's just always being able to move things. A documentary, I think, has exceeded from a nonlinear workflow more than more than most mediums. 
So I guess using Avid, because you can go from Avid to Pro Tools relatively easily, I guess that made it easier to go from the editing room to sound because you had to give it get it to sound before you even went to the theaters. Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. And everybody was working with our animators as well. I mean, pretty much everybody is working in concert. Everybody can use the same media, the same files, and just ease of going from you know point A to point B. And even when you're finishing, I mean, ultimately, we edit in Media Composer, five and then they pretty much finish on you know a nitro system so avid to avid and avid to pro tools the media works incredibly well together now angus the panel looked at the portability and unconventional setups for post-production what has avid been doing to make their tools more accessible and more mobile for for documentary editors yeah that's a great question i think that the first thing is to point out that Media Composer has been available as a software-only solution for about four years now. And while in the past it was necessary to run Media Composer with uh, Avid hardware, now we offer a bunch of choices with different hardware partners. So you can get a Media Composer software-based system on a laptop and run it with either an AJ or a Matrox box and be able to have very portable system. This makes it just like a lot of other NLEs that are out there on the market and people are familiar with. So very easy to to bring it on set. The other thing is that Avid offers a few different workflow options to make handling dailies and on-set editorial simpler, including things like our recent announcement with HA to include DNxHD in the KeyPro Mini uh, field recorder, but also offering tools like Avid Metafuse, which help to, to encode to DNx. And the other thing worth mentioning is AMA, which allows many of the popular file-based formats to be accessed immediately and natively by Media Composer, giving you the ability on set to immediately begin screening and uh, start doing some rough editorial work. So you have uh, a number of different options for you to help design a workflow that's going to make sense. And just as Jeremy was saying, that integration into a pipeline is something that I think is really worth bringing up again. You save so much in terms of transcoding, metadata management, project transfer, when you are working with systems that understand each other properly. And obviously, Media Composer and Pro Tools have a very tight integration with uh, OMF project transfer. And then just as Jeremy was saying, integration into a symphony system for finishing is a great workflow. Now, what about with everything switching to the cloud servers? What are the plans for Avid? Is there any discussion about that? Because I remember seeing a press release just a little while ago. We've actually, Avid has a number of technologies that are always being used in different implementations. And one of the ways in which we've already started to use the cloud for editorial is with some of our more news-oriented products where you're giving the ability to people uh, to work with a web browser-based interface for editorial or with a smartphone. And that was some stuff that was announced uh, at NEB this year. So that gives you an indication of some of the things that, that we're working on as far as cloud services goes. Jeremy, do you think you, you'll be using the, the cloud-based services soon? or? Um, I mean, it's, it's always a possibility. I mean, I think each project determines, you know, what, what your workflow is. But I mean, any time that you can add some layer of versatility, you, you always want you always want that. Well, I'm thinking almost like uh, in the movie Where in the World is Osama Bin Laden, he could have <laughs> used 
cloud-based to get the footage back to the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think especially now as more and more formats go to tapeless, I mean, for where in the world we shot, you know, about a thousand hours of footage for that and we shot it all on pretty much, it was, you know, 80, 90 percent of that was shot on a Sony F900, so it's on an HD cam. I mean, just the baggage charges of lugging all of those tapes to and from the field were astronomical, where for the Comic-Con film, we shot pretty much, you know, 80% of that footage was shot on the EX1, EX3, which is XD cam. We use a little bit of F900, a little bit of 5D, a little 7D, and some other formats as well. But, you know, the more you have tapeless formats and the more you are immediately able to back those up in the field and, you know, as a producer, to know that you have your footage somewhere redundantly, that's great. I mean, that type of solution, you know, would be amazing. You touched on uh, a few things a little earlier like the animation how does that get worked into your workflow as a documentary filmmaker like I, I think about Freakonomics and its use in there at what stage do you start thinking about that it depends I mean you start thinking about it pretty much for us I mean we'll you know the way that Morgan and I make a movie is we have an idea we write up a one sheet we say wow in the best of all circumstances this is how the movie's going to go and we start shooting and that completely goes out the window but even in those instances we always are thinking about how animation and graphics will be on i mean once we get i'd say a rough cut where you could see the shape of the film probably down to about two hours maybe two and a half hours we start really thinking about animation i mean from a practical standpoint in terms of money we try to save animation until the absolute last thing i mean freakonomics was kind of a dream project for Morgan and myself because, and especially for myself, because there was, an, you know, pretty much a really tremendous amount of time because we were the first of those filmmakers to go with an anthology project. But in terms of animation, I mean, the best is always, you know, we, we try to, as much as possible, we try to keep it to the end. But for something like Greatest Movie, everything is happening concurrently. So it's great when the animators are doing their roughs, you know, and whatever they're sending back in their temp graphics, that we can just slot those in into our timeline with ease, and we're always having a sense in real time of what the film is actually feeling and looking like. Angus, with the uh, recent market shift from Final Cut Pro to Avid, Avid announced the cross-grade deal. I was wondering what are some of the other approaches Avid is taking to help confirm your software as a professional leading tool? It's a very interesting question, Gordon. I mean, I think that if we look at the number of projects that are completed now with Media Composer around the world, both in feature, television, documentary, independent, and a variety of other type of content, which I don't know if we could call it just digital media if you want, but web content, music videos, uh, lots of event content, you see that it's a product that's used widely. And with the slew of awards it's won, and it's over 20 years of customer-driven development, it's it's obviously a, a mature and complete set of uh, editing tools all in one system. We'd like to, you know, of course, remind people about uh, how Media Composer is the tool that's used on the most demanding productions. And, of course, all of the benefits that it provides to editors and production teams for those very high-end features and high-end productions obviously apply to day-to-day -day work, too. I mean, if, if you have a, a very efficient tool, it's going to help you no matter what kind of project you're working on. What we've found is this past summer, since about NEB, that there's been an incredible level of interest in Media Composer. And we've put together a number of things to help people make a transition to it. 
including some online community forums, uh, providing a number of training resources for people, and generally putting together uh, pages of information that are going to help people make the transition to Media Composer. With our cross-grade, we actually include some uh, training material for people coming from Final Cut to Media Composer. I think that, you know, the other thing that <clears throat> we're always doing in marketing is trying to get our story out on the road and making sure that the next generation of editors who are coming up through the ranks have exposure to Media Composer and can appreciate some of its speed and efficiency and some of the tools to make a difference. You know, Jeremy was talking about bringing a number of different formats together into one project. Mentioned, you know, uh, XDCAM and HDCAM and, you know, uh, H.264 material out of 5D or 7D. And I think that, you know, things like real-time mix and match in Media Composer with AMA together offer a really compelling solution to people who are faced with this barrage of digital files and are trying to figure out a way to easily manage it. You know, Media Composer has got great real-time capabilities. You know, the, these are important points as people consider which tools they're they're working on. You touched on uh, going to the community and getting feedback. How have you approached the editing community to get this feedback and then utilized it with your software engineers? Because they're very, uh, any software engineer I've worked with is a very different uh, approach to coding than I think an editor would have. That's a, that's a great question. You know, obviously there is a way technical people solve problems uh, is different. I think you've, you've hit on something very interesting. And so where our design team comes into play is figuring out what customers are asking for and then interpreting that, figuring out how to turn that into something that's going to make a difference in, in the tool. And I think that, you know, again, most of the things that people are looking for are productivity boosters. People are not asking to have their world turned upside down. You know, they're asking for improvements to their workflows that have been established. There are set ways of working that have been built up over the years and the whole industry uses and appreciates. And, you know, it's important for people to be able to continue to do that and still gain productivity. You know, that's obviously something important. So AMA and Mix and Match speak to that. As far as how we go out to, to get that feedback, we have a number of different ways that we do it. We have these things called customer advisory boards where we consult with groups of editors. We work directly with professional associations with whom we have very close relationships, including you know, uh, the Producers Guild, the Directors Guild, the Association of Independent Creative Editors, Creative Producers, you know, ACE, obviously a very important group with whom we work carefully. And, you know, they actually certified Media Composer as their preferred editor based on that. So, you know, we have a lot of ways in which we actively go out and get feedback. And then, of course, we have plenty of customer interaction all the time that allows us to get a lot of feedback at trade shows, user group events, road shows, and things like the uh, panel that Jeremy participated in yesterday are also a great way to get feedback. Now, Jeremy, you do you mentioned that a few times that you might have 600 hours or 1,000 hours, and uh, you've also, you also are a writer on many of the docs. How do you weed through all that footage and find the story through so many hours of, of footage, especially when the, the initial story might not work. You have no substitute for your editor watching, you know, pretty much as much of the footage as humanly um, possible, especially for documentaries, because, you know, we get back from the field 
And then we give our editors, we're like, this is what we think is the best thing. These are what we think, you know, this is what we think worked very well. This is kind of where the story is. Um, you know, we give them kind of our rough paper outline of where we think the film will ultimately go. We give that to the editor, and then we let the editors really dive in, and they give us a rough cut. And sometimes, or when I, let me take a step back. Ultimately, what we like to do is let the editors really kind of put the movie into a shape that they see from what they're feeling in the raw footage. And then there's a conversation that takes place between what we wanted to shoot and then what we actually shot and how those two visions really come together to ultimately make the movie. In terms of kind of tools, you know, I mean, being able to pull up any clips anytime you want is amazing. I just actually got to play around with Phrase Find, which uh, actually has uh, has blown my mind. Well, Phrase Find would be perfect because you don't necessarily have uh, a script with you all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, and I'll actually say, I mean, ultimately, the reason why Phrase Find becomes so important is, you know, when you're dealing even with 300 hours of footage, um, which in terms is not the most amount of footage for docs. I mean, 300 hours is still a good amount of time. There's such a thing where you have 600 hours of footage and you have so many different cameras going at once. I am never going to spend the money to have 600 hours of footage transcribed just from how much money that would take to actually get that footage transcribed, the time it would take to read those transcripts, you know, the, the linking of it. I mean, it becomes just, you know, it becomes more problems than it's, than it's worth. And you're just kind of, you know, you're in, you're in a deluge of, of paper. With phrase find, you know, you get what you really want transcribed, but you still have this, you know, tool which becomes this great redundancy of, I really think somebody said, you know, Stan Lee. Every time Stan Lee is mentioned, that comes up. I mean, that's, that's an amazing, amazing tool, and especially for, because you get notes back in the field, you're like, oh my God, they said this, and this was amazing. And sometimes they do, and sometimes sometimes they don't. Now, when you're working on the project, how early do you find the spine in the, in the editing process or the through line? And how do you keep your editors on track while you're out in the field documenting? It's a very good question, and each process is different. For Morgan, for movies that have Morgan in them, which are very narrative-driven, it's a little bit, I don't know if it's easier, but we, the way we edit, we always edit concurrently, especially with Morgan films, because you want to know exactly what you're getting. You want to be crafting the story simultaneously. Otherwise, just from a practical standpoint, you find yourself where you shoot all this footage, and that's going to take four or five months in some cases. Sometimes it takes longer than that. And then it's going to take at least that amount of time to cut together the film. So by the time you go from the day you start shooting to the time the film comes out, the last thing you want is, you know, your movie to be 18 months behind the idea when you initially start. But in terms of keeping editors on, on track, besides the occasional electric shock or <laughs> we'll feed you today or we won't feed you today, you know, the biggest thing is always communicating. And I think, you know, communicating with the director, I think producers are really, really important to be able to help shape what's really in the edit and really say, this is what we're getting. This is what the footage actually is like when you're getting it back from the field, even though our intentions were that we were getting something like this. What are some of the tools that you found most useful in, in the editing room for documentary? In ter- I mean, I'm really excited for, for Phrase Fun. I, I really have to say, I mean, that is something that we will use consistently, and it, it really will save time. I mean, you know, in terms of being able to just drop in different, uh, especially for Comic-Con, being able to drop in different uh, different forms of media um, or different formats of media, excuse me, into each timeline saves a lot of time. You know, I mean, just 
every way Avid just maintains its media and you can link to things. Um, all those. I mean, I'm sorry, my, my technical expertise isn't the, isn't the names of the various tools. I just have one, one last question for the two of you that I, I usually ask all the editors I interview, and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Uh, my favorite guilty pleasure? Um, I love every big, amazing, stupid summer tentpole movie. I love giant, giant, big summer blockbusters. I love them. How, how about yourself, Angus? Uh, Blazing Saddles. That's a great one. Well, I'd like to thank you guys for allowing me to interview you two and uh, giving me the time to talk to you about uh, Avid and the IFP. Hi, everybody. That was Gord's interview with Jeremy Chilnick. This is the Lauren Renfer file, so now yeah. I'm taking and control. And Lauren, you ran into Morgan Spurlock at TIFF. Not really. More like I just walked past him when he was talking to some other people. I literally walked past. I wasn't even on the close side to him. But he was totally at the uh, hotel that Gord and I lived in when we were flooded. flooded. And if you know what we're talking about, you've been listening to this podcast for a lot. couple of years now. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, we were flooded out for a bit there. We lived in a, a hotel for a month or two. We lived in a hotel so long it changed from a Holiday Inn to a Hyatt. And the signage even changed in the front of the hotel. We were very well known. They knew us by name. Well loved. Well loved by the staff. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to lead the conversation now. So, Gord, um... How was the Toronto, I know we kind of talked about it, but how was the Toronto pub night? It was great. We had a lot of uh, great people show up. We had about 20 people. Mm-hmm. Toronto's a tough city to get people out. Even even your own wife. Even my own wife, yeah. She lives in the city and she didn't even show up. <laughs> Sometimes uh, when it's your own city, it's, uh, it's tough to get you out of the house. So what's, what can people expect from our guillotine in the next couple months? Well, uh, if you were listening, because this is our double dose. This is number two of our podcasts. If you didn't listen to the other one, we have the possibility of a Boston pub night. We're just finalizing our details. We also have Movember coming up. So if you are willing to support us in our fight against cancer... We're going to be teaming up as a team at Art of the Guillotine and encouraging all our community to grow ridiculous mustaches yeah, in the month should, of November. We should even start a picture area on Facebook for everybody's Movembers. So even if you aren't part of the Art of the Guillotine staff, if you're just part of the guillotine community, you we can post your picture of your guillotine mm-hmm. Movember stash. So we'll do that. We're also hoping to do a special Halloween episode. Are we? Yeah. Well. Oh. Yeah. Well, it might even be live. What? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. So hopefully, fingers crossed. <laughs> We're out of words. Yeah. Well, no, it's it's going to be because essentially I'm trying to set it up so that we can do live broadcasts more often. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this might be our first experiment. Who knows how it'll go, but that's yeah. awesome. That's why you should watch. Not for the content, but to see us make mistakes. Yes. Is it I a will... video? Yeah. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, girl. But, but. Yeah. I don't know about you, Lauren, but my first experience with live broadcast was quite interesting. Well, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> how interesting was it? <laughs> Um, it was in a, someone was trying to replicate Speaker's Corner. So if you're not in Toronto and you're wondering what Speaker's Corner is, or you're not in Canada, because some people in Canada might know, 
it's uh there's this area in Toronto where there was where they set up a video camera and you could essentially go and rant about anything. So there were also mobile booths. Yeah. And um, so if you were upset with something you could complain or if you mm-hmm. wanted to tell people, you know, and that's how if you're a bare naked ladies fan, that's how you, they got their start. Same with Scott Speedman. Same with Scott Speedman. Yeah. Who I don't know who that is. Okay. And You're welcome, ladies. And so And Batman fans. This group wanted to do a replication Sorry, he wasn't in Batman. He auditioned for Batman on Speaker's Corner. That was my mistake. My apologies. This group wanted to do sort of an imitation of it. and But they wanted to do it with cameramen and live switchers. And so you could literally see what was happening if you showed up and went terribly wrong very fast. <laughs> as uh, we didn't have any delay. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's stupid <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't afford because it's extra for their systems that back then that would do the delay but it's more expensive so they went with the one that had no delay and if you ever want to see a producer or director pull their hair out watch as a group of people start cussing live oh dear. on air about the mayor <laughs> oh no oh no that's not good so um my first i actually haven't had any direct experiences with um, live broadcast. I've dealt with live to tape a bit, yeah. but not very much. Yeah, I've. You know how you get. You, we had those. Um, you know, like oh, we've disappeared for due to technical difficulties. Mm. If it was a half an hour episode, I would say at least fifteen minutes. If it was <laughs> that's super. Because every time someone cussed, we had to switch to that. And Fantastic. High quality production. Yeah, it was pretty sad. So, yeah, we're hoping to do our first live broadcast Halloween special. Yeah. Well, Lauren, I'd like to thank Angus Mackay. I'd like to thank Jeremy Chilnick. And I'd like to thank Lauren Woodcock, my producer. Say it properly. Lauren Woodcock. Burkell. I'd also like to thank Rob for helping set up this interview. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.